HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses of Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. It is Monday at 12 o'clock, and that means it's time for What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to continue our political theme. Uh, We'll be talking to Claire Benjamin DiMattina as the executive director of of this organization. Claire oversees... uh, Food Policy Action and the Food Policy Action Education Fund, including publication of the National Food Policy Scorecard, my favorite new tool to rate uh, congressmen, and the organization's public education and advocacy work. Prior to her work at Food Policy Action, Claire worked for nine years on food and agricultural issues on Capitol Hill. And from 2008 to 2013, Claire served as Congresswoman Shelley Pingree's legislative director, one of my very favorites. In this role, Claire led the Congresswoman's efforts to reform agriculture and food policy. Claire grew up in Vermont and attended the University of Vermont. Welcome to the program, Claire. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, first of all, I love your organization. And secondly, by the way, I love Shelly Pingree, and um, she'll be one of my guests coming up in the next few weeks. I'm still trying to work that out with her um, media director. But anyway, um, why don't you start by telling us about Food Policy Action and what you guys do? Sure. So Food Policy Action is a relatively new organization. We've been around since 2012. Uh, it's a, you know, it was formed as a collaboration of food policy leaders like Ken Cook from the Environmental Working Group and Wayne Faselli from the Humane Society and Chef Tom Clicchio from Top Chef Fame in order to hold legislators accountable for their votes that affect food and farming. Um, they felt like in, in 2012 that despite very good advocacy efforts by a lot of their own organizations, food really lacked political clout. You know, at the end of the day, we were still losing big fights on Capitol Hill, and in part, uh, their thinking was we weren't holding legislators accountable on Election Day. We weren't providing this kind of easy-to-use information like League of Conservation Voters does or, you know, any other sort of scorecard scorecard um, group. So mm-hmm. we started publishing the scorecard in 2012, and, you know, what we do is we bring together advocates from different areas within the food movement um, and come up with one easy-to-understand score on how your legislators vote on everything from healthy diets and hunger to reducing foodborne illnesses and support for local and regional food systems. 
Wow. So we were talking about food policy action, of which you are the director. Um, which of the, you know, when you talk about uh, identifying sort of issues for voters to be aware of in terms of legislation, which of those many issues related to food are at the top of your agenda? Like I think of things like food insecurity or immigration reform or fair wages or rolling back subsidies for commodity crops. Like where, where do your priorities um, start? Yeah, so it's really important for us to be good partners on food issues as they come to Congress. And and what that means is, you know, our overall goal is to raise the political profile of food issues. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like is that we react with other good coalition partners to big fights that are happening on Capitol Hill. So last year that meant we spent a lot of time advocating for a better child nutrition bill um, and fair and accurate labeling of GMOs. This year I think that will look – very similar to trying to finish up the work on that five-year child nutrition bill. Uh Um, And, you know, we hope to finish up GMO labeling in the next couple months as well. Wow. So, um, so you find partners within Congress that you can work with, or these are other groups that you are aligned with like the environmental working group or agri or something like that? It's like groups like agree. It's groups like the environmental working group. We do a lot of work with the um, nutrition coalitions, the NANA uh-huh. coalition, which is run by the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Right. Um, you know, it's important for us to be good partners, but to bring that political accountability to some of these more long-term discussions about how we ultimately pass better legislation. Uh huh. So tell us a little bit about the National Food Policy Scorecard, which I have to tell you, I literally spend hours poring over that thing because, for one thing, the way you guys have it set up is so great because you can actually look at the issues you you know if you if people want to go past sort of the you know 10 percent to 100 percent scoring um they can see exactly which votes you're tallying up and how those people voted on them so um so who's doing well and and who scores and who doesn't and and tell us how you arrived at your criteria sure so we um we work with an advisory council which is made up of Good food lobbyists who spend their nine to five working on issues like food transparency and food labeling and child nutrition and you know sustainable fisheries. Um, we work with them throughout the year to hear more about what bills are going to come up through Congress, what what amendment votes we'd like to see, what some of the big issues ahead are, um, and then we meet quarterly to, to have those discussions. What's the scorecard going to look like? What should be included? What shouldn't be included? Um, and then at the, you know, around September, we get together and, and make those recommendations to to really what what's going to be the meat of it. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, last year we saw um, we saw a lot of, you know, we, we didn't see a ton of action on food issues. And so right. for the last couple of years, we've actually added um, co-sponsors or support for really critical pieces of legislation that aren't getting votes. So that means right. the overuse of antibiotics, bills like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I noticed. Like there were things on there that there were, you know, people who were co-sponsoring things, but those votes never seemed to emerge uh, <laughs> onto the floor, which I find, you know, kind of disturbing. But, you know. It is what it is. So who who do you guys, in terms of Congress, who would you say, first of all, who scored? Who are the, it looked to me like all the Democrats do well and all the Republicans are terrible. Um, is that about right? I mean, it seems like, you know, Republicans never score more than 40% on your scorecard, maybe one or two, a little bit more. Um, and the Democrats always score over 70. So why do you think that, uh, I mean, I don't understand how, how it is that a, that a Republican can vote against child nutrition, for example, or something like that. I mean, that just seems kind of crazy to me. 
Yeah, so, you know, first of all, we are a nonpartisan organization. We right. feel strongly that food does not have to be a partisan issue. Um, regardless is. of party affiliation, we agree with what you're saying, that Americans care about safety and affordability of their food. Um, and it's part of the reason we produce a scorecard, because mm-hmm. for a long time, nobody was paying attention to food issues as a as a voting block anyway. And yeah. so we started to publicize this so that there's a, there's a little bit more transparency. Um, and it's not a huge surprise to your point that Democrats tend to do better than Republicans on the scorecard. But I think what is surprising is that some Democrats have terrible scores and a number of Republicans have higher scores. And we continue to see the number of Republicans whose scores are passable in that 50 and 60 range increasing. Huh. I didn't really take that in. In fact, I, I don't think I saw any uh, Democrats who were below 50 percent, but I'm, you will correct me. I really did pour over that thing because I just thought it was so fascinating. I mean, to see what these guys like think about. I mean, maybe they're not thinking about it. In fact, they're not thinking about it. That's why you exist, yep. isn't it? <laughs> right. Right. Um, so but, like, who, take Senator Susan Collins from Maine, for yeah, example. In she 2015, scores well. She got an 88 percent, which was, you know, higher than 15 of her Democratic colleagues. So there are, you know, there's bright spots, I will say. And then members like, you know, uh, Peterson and Cuellar and Cinema all scored Democrats, all scored below, well below 50 percent. So there are it's very much about. In these cases, I think where they're from, where these members right. are from in the country as well. So those um, those members would be from the from the grain belt, from the from the corn and soy belt. Is that why their scores are so low? I tend to think of those voter those people as tending to be more conservative than others. Yeah, I think if you look at the the Democrats who have scored really poorly over the last four years, you will see that they are, they are from some of those those Green Belt uh, districts. And yeah. some of the Republicans who've scored really well are from places like Alaska mm-hmm. and Maine and California. Right, right, right. Um, so who are the people who are your who are your favorite people in Congress? Who do you who do you who are your go to allies when you want to bring something up and say, hey, look, I really think we should be focusing on, you know, child nutrition or uh, GMO labeling. Who are your guys in Congress that you rely on? Yeah, well, the good news is there's there's more than a handful. We have one hundred and sixteen members who scored hundred percent in 2015, but the, so the folks that we really rely on to offer those good amendments, to take leadership roles in the House, are a lot of people that, you know, you probably work with as well. My old boss, Representative Shelley Pingree, is sure. fantastic on these issues, from food waste to local farming. Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut has been a huge champion and continues to be Representative Potter has had the overuse of antibiotics bill in Congress yeah. basically forever. Um, and then on the Senate side, you know, we do a lot of work with Senator Tester and Senator Boxer. Um, Senator Leahy has been a champion on food issues for a, a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and then we do a lot of work with, with Tim Ryan from Ohio, you know, oh, in yeah, the middle just of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Really terrific. I mean, he really was so, I mean, so much smarter and more articulate than I anticipated because, um, you know, I don't always have the highest opinion of these guys in terms of their intellect. Um, of, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and and again, it's like the people that I like, of course, I think are really smart, but <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you can see that I'm really not a nonpartisan type here. Um, I, I definitely have a very, very uh, you know, specific uh, requirements. But what about on the state level? Like, are there state politicians who are working within their state? 
uh, on issues that you consider valuable to, you know, to uh, food policy action or, or to plate of the union? Like I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned um, – you know, Shelley Pingree up in Maine, uh, as well as Susan Collins, or for instance, Sheldon Whitehouse in Rhode Island. He gets a 100 score. Um, and I know he's very active in the fisheries issues. Um, are there people like that who you feel are, are sort of more, uh, you know, focused on the state level and, and do more work there rather than or are able to do more work there rather than being able to exactly pass legislation on a national level, but they're pushing towards it in the state level? Yeah, there's no doubt that there is a lot more work happening in states than ever before on food policy. We see that, you know, the, the GMO labeling bills working their way through, some of the food sovereignty issues um, happening in all parts of the country. I think what's important for us, too, is we're a really Washington scorecard organization, but what we, you know, a big part of the work we do is to get out of D.C. and to talk to voters and talk to the public so that right. they will talk to their elected officials about how important these issues are. So, the Plate of the Union campaign, which I hope we'll talk about um, oh, yeah. in more detail a little bit later. But, you know, we'll be opening, along with coalition partners, field offices in five states across the country, in New Hampshire, Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, to do just that, to work with local, local leaders, to build leadership on the ground, um, so that in future years we have just a stronger level of support in, in, in those in those places and, and hopefully more. Yeah, because I often feel like, you know, I think that people go to Washington and they really do seem to lose touch in a funny way. Um, not in a funny way, in an obvious way, because so many of them are kind of bought uh, by, you know, their major campaign donors. I know you're not allowed to talk about that, Claire, but I am. Um, and... Um, and- <laughs> Um, but the thing is, is that like they, they sort of lose touch with what those issues are. And I think the foods part of the piece, I mean, aside from dealing with, you know, if you're like, for instance, in Rhode Island, when the when the crash happened in 2007, 2008, I mean, we had, you know, like an enormous uh, unemployment rate and hundreds, thousands and thousands of people on food stamps and in the food banks who had been middle class before that. And I felt like the state, you know, was kind of uh, caught off guard a little bit by that. And I think that was kind of, you know, across the board. And, and it seemed like they did a lot of work to build up some sort of a safety net. And I, you know, I feel like those food issues became sort of front and center in Rhode Island in a way maybe they weren't in some of the other states, but should be like in the South, where, for instance, malnutrition and, and you know, obesity are these enormous epidemics. And yet the legislation doesn't seem to be at all connected to those problems. Are those going to be some of the places that you guys will expand to after your first five states? I think we'll we'll see how it, how the next year looks like in those five states. For us, it's a pretty new organization. It's a heavy lift to to actively participate in the elections in right. five states, and then after that, absolutely. I think um, you know other places include Colorado, other states in the South. Certainly, New England, for you know, as a New Englander myself, it's, it's been a place where food issues have mattered for a long time. But you're right that starting to connect the dots between the way we subsidize food and nutrition and health outcomes are, um, you know, that some of the work happening up there to piece those, that story together has been happening long before other parts of the country. Yeah, it does seem like that. Um, wh- how does your does your organization then, when t- to go back to the national level, does you do you guys organize and and lobby Congress directly? Are you going into, uh, you know, the offices of uh, say somebody who's got a low score, um, and say you know and saying to them, you know, you need to look at this issue a little more closely, or how, how does that part of it work? Yeah. So some of the 
you know, first work we, we did and continue to do is this edu- level of education to, mm-hmm. to the Hill, to members of Congress, to make sure they understand that somebody's paying attention and that we're communicating this information back to their constituents and that every time that a food vote comes to Congress, we're going to make a recommendation on, on how you vote. And so a lot of the work we do is, is sharing the scorecard, sharing information about votes as they come up. So from the you know trade agreements to GMO labeling, we're going to communicate back to you and let you know what we think. Um, and then we do some direct lobbying of Congress. And I think some of the you know most fun work we do is bringing groups to Washington to meet with their legislators. And so for the last couple of years, we've through our, you know, our work with Chef Tom Clickia, we've been bringing chefs to Washington to lobby on issues that they're really passionate about. So sure. two years ago, that was GMO labeling. Last year, we brought in with our partners at the Chef Action Network 50 chefs from 40, 40 states, and we did you know, over 100 meetings to talk about the importance of a good child nutrition bill. So it, when appropriate, we absolutely weigh in directly with Congress. And then, you know, we, we do a lot of this basic education about food issues and, and that people really care about them, too. And that's sort of our, you know, that that is the best service we can provide, I think. I agree. I mean, I feel like most of these guys literally have no clue. I think that, uh, I think yeah. that, you know, most people are really across the country since hardly anyone cooks anymore. You know, there's such a sort of, and, and we get so much information about what's good for you, what's bad for you, what you should be eating, what you shouldn't be eating. And it's so conflicting so often um, you know, that it's, it's really not surprising that these people really don't have much of a, you know, sort of basic base of information from which to make decisions. And I, it's, 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 it makes it a lot easier to be swayed by one interest versus another, I would imagine, right? Absolutely. Now, aside from Shelley Pingree and her fantastic food waste bill, which is uh, apparently coming up for some sort of marking up or whatever they call it. Um, what are some of the other top food-related issues or initiatives that you are going to be pursuing over the next couple of, of congressional sessions, I guess I should say, because it's not really sequential in the way that we think about it. But you know what I mean? Like they're in session for a few months and then they're gone for a few <laughs> months and then they're in session yep. for a few months. Like, yep. okay, so it's like not this year, but in the next like three years. Um, yeah, what do you think is going to be answer- the big- yeah, Congress isn't voting on enough food issues, period. And we need and part of the reason we exist is so that they try to pass more. Um, and also we try to, you know, damage or, or not pass bad bills like the, the Dark Act, which I think we'll talk about in yeah. a little bit too. Um, so besides Shelley's really fantastic food, food waste bill, um, we hope to see this year legislation coming through on child nutrition, which will reauthorize child nutrition programs right. for the next five years. Uh, recently, a good bill recently passed the Senate Agriculture Committee, um, which we hope to see on the floor, um, and then later in the House. Uh, I think we will, in the next couple weeks, um, as soon as this Thursday, see the labeling, GMO labeling fight come to a head in the Senate, um, which will instruct, I think, some of the some of the pieces coming through the House. Um, but like I said, you know, not all good or bad bills are coming through Congress right now. And, you know, it's up to the public and it's up to us to apply more pressure to say these bills are important and we should um, see more of them. We'd love to see a bill on the overuse of antibiotics. It's an incredibly important issue that has has not seen the light of day um, in years and years um, to finally address the misuse of antibiotics and, and animal production um, and what that does to for antibiotic resistant superbugs. Um, we'd love to see that and continue to do to do work on that uh, until we see a vote. You think that's going to happen? I mean that that 
PAMTA, the preservation of antibiotic medicine, blah, 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 the Louis Slaughter thing, that has been kicking around Congress for like 12 years now. Yep. You actually think yeah. that's going to come to a vote? No way. I mean, not to burst your bubble or anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I think the important piece here is that this is, you know, this is a perfect example of an issue that is so important to the public and so important to voters, and we are seeing absolutely no action in the House of the Senate. And so while I don't think there will be a vote on it in 2016, I think what we can do is, can, is build power in the states so that there is more pressure on Congress so they feel like they have to take a vote on bills like this. Well, I, I, I wish you I really hope you are successful in that. I mean, I to me, it is, a, you know, it's just a national disgrace. We are the only country uh, left, basically. Well, Brazil uses and China, mm-hmm. of course, and the, and the Soviet and, the, and Russia. They're all using um, antibiotics as fast as they can. But but um, we're the only ones besides, you know, th- these other countries that are I don't consider in the sort of the same ballpark as us. Um, in mm-hmm. terms of awareness and, you know, and also public health issue, you know, being aware of public health issues. It's just but even the Chinese are getting on board with this. They're panicking because they're they're at their last resort drug, Colistin, which they're seeing anti they're seeing uh, multidrug resistance to in their pathogens, in their meat, in their meat uh, production industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, you know, I mean, that's just, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the lobby here, I, I just went to this big international meat conference in Atlanta and I'm telling you, there was plenty of young, you know, small booths, of people who were talking about it. And I, I think that finally the American Meat Institute is getting on board with it, but it's really, I mean, these big producers, uh, uh-uh, they just don't want to make the swap and they can, it's just going to cost them money and nobody wants to you know give up that shareholder that extra you know profit to their shareholders i mean it's it's such a naughty problem anyway um let's talk for a second about the dark act um which has another name which i know you know but tell us what the dark act is because that respect that <laughs> relates to the gen, uh, gmo labeling tell us about that because they have a really amazing name for it that is such a piece of double speak it's like right out of you know 1984 i mean it's <laughs> what is its real name so we, we call it the the Dark Act, the Deny Americans the Right to Know Act, because right. it would deny consumers accurate and consistent labeling information on whether their food is genetically genetically engineered or not. And that's, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's the name of the bill. Um, and, you know, rather than creating mandatory FDA labeling process, it, it takes several years to launch, and it's um, not mandatory. And right. it, having a voluntary system we've seen over and over again really does not work for the FDA. It doesn't work for consumers. It doesn't, you know, companies have no incentive to do it. No, it's like, um, that's why we still have antibiotics. We're 30% more antibiotics, even though we supposedly passed the voluntary guidelines to phase them out three years ago, right? So, right. Yeah. And one of the worst things about it is it overrides state labeling laws. So states like Vermont and Maine and Connecticut and others who where voters have decided clearly that they want mandatory labeling, um, it preempts preempts them. So, you know, this is one of the most dangerous bills working its way through Congress. The repercussions for consumers are are really bad. And just on this last Friday, we saw Senator Roberts introduce the Senate version of the Dark Act. Uh Um, And while, you know, that bill is not as bad as the House version, it would still require the USDA to set a voluntary national food labeling standard for GMOs. It still preempts states, um, both for GMO foods and for, for seeds. Um, and, you know, this is just 
not meeting consumers' needs. And so, right. you know, this version of the Dark Act, while, you know, doesn't have all the bells and whistles of the really bad version out of the house, yeah. um, it, it would still, you know, absolutely not change things for consumers. We would still... You know, unlike 64 other nations, we would not have uh, we would not have the transparency in the food system that we we all want. Right, right. Now, doesn't this fly in the? This is what fascinates me about it. So, the Dark Act, or you know, whatever its real name is, this this takes away states' rights. This is the federal government overriding states' rights. Now, isn't that exactly what Republicans complain about? Aren't we supposed to have less federal government intervention into what states want and not more? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the great contradictions of the Republican Party at the moment. Yeah, uh, they don't want to preempt states until they do. Yeah, um, and it, 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 I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to be sure I was getting that right. Why don't we take this moment to take a very short break, and then we'll come back uh, and talk a little about elections and the plate of the union and all of the other good stuff that you guys are involved in. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with Claire Benjamin DiMatina from Food Policy Action. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Today we're talking Food Policy Action, the organization, uh, with the director, Claire Benjamin DiMettina. Um, Claire, thanks again for joining us today. So in the upcoming election... Do you guys have targets, uh, you know, people who you're either supporting or hoping to defeat in terms on the on the state level and, um, you know, in terms of senators and congressmen? And um, and how do you organize those campaigns? So uh, over the next several months, we'll continue to, to communicate with voters on the importance of good food policy. We'll put out another scorecard to make sure that information is really up to date. And then, you know, look for an announcement from us later this year about who our specific targets are. Um, and I'm happy to talk about some of the work we did in 2014 and what that what that could look like. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us what you were doing so that we know what to, what 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 we what we can expect in 2016 and also how people can get involved. So in in 2014, we similar to this year monitored a lot of different races um, and really looked for a place where we could show that food was going to move voters one way or another for a good candidate or against a bad candidate mm-hmm. and ultimately. Um, we played a role in Steve Sutherland's race, who represented the panhandle of Florida, and he had managed to get himself into a really tough reelection. There was um, a lot of money on both sides pouring into that race, and we did a small poll in his district um, about his food policy record. So we tested his vote uh, to cut um, food safety workers, and we Whoa. tested his votes on um, his gigantic cuts to the food stamp SNAP program. He wanted to mm-hmm. cut SNAP benefits for families, for elderly, for unemployed veterans, you name it. And what oh we found God. was the the kinds of voters that needed to come out in order for Steve Sutherland to lose were the same kinds of voters that really um, resonated with our message, especially around his um, his his bill that was going to cut food stamps for unemployed veterans. And so we... Um, 
we did a series of t- telephone town halls with Tom Clickio down there to talk directly to targeted voters, and we did um, digital advertising, and we you know communicated directly with voters, and, and ultimately. That was one of only two seats where the incumbent Republican lost his reelection, and, and Gwen Graham won by just over 2,200 votes. And so, wow. you know, for us, that really shows what we can do when we communicate directly with voters about their legislators' very bad record on food policy. Wow, that is that's really inspiring. So, um, to to as the next question, let's talk about plate of the union because that's a, a great way for people to understand what those issues are on a, on a broader canvas. So um, give us what's going on with Plate of the Union, because we had Ricardo Salvador on a few months ago. He was fantastic um, to talk okay. about Plate of the Union. But where, where does it stand now and what's happened? So as Ricardo probably talked about, uh, Plate of the Union is a first of its kind collaborative effort with the Policy Action Union of Concerned Scientists and the, mm-hmm. the, the Heal Food, food Coalition. Um, and what we found is that, you know, our food system is out of balance and Americans are concerned about access to healthy, affordable food. And what we found through our research was that the next, that the public wants the next president to take bold action to fix the food system. So our goal is to have presidential candidates publicly declare that our national food and agriculture system is in significant need of reform and that they will work on it in their next administration. So yeah. as I talked about a little bit earlier, we are opening field offices in five states. Um, And we'll be organizing in those places to talk directly to candidates at debates, at town halls, um, through an online petition. You know, the the best, you know, both earned media and on-the-ground work that we can do to engage voters to, you know, have this message loud and clear to candidates that food issues are important. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's really almost nothing more important besides shelter <laughs> and clean water. Right. And we, we've seen right. how that's working out for people. <laughs> oh, my God. This is just so much to worry about. I mean, I don't <laughs> I, I, I literally I can barely sleep at night. I'm telling you, Claire, it's like between the water, the food, the atmosphere. I mean, I don't know. And then and then we have Donald Trump and Ted Cruz barreling towards the nomination. I mean, it's really it's like the apocalypse. Um, but you have a fantastic initiative going on in colleges, which I I definitely wanted to bring up and talk about here. What are you guys doing in colleges? Because I know that college dining and my daughter goes to UMass and the guy who runs the dining program there, Ken Tung, is just a superstar in terms of where and how he buys and sources and, you know, what he's encouraging and how he's, you know, teaching kids about good, healthy food and also avoiding food waste and everything. I'm sure you know this guy. He's just a rock star in institutional dining. And it seems to me he'd be a natural partner for you um, if you haven't already reached out to him. But he's got, I mean, what are you doing in the, in the college thing? Because you're, you're basically, those kids are being trained up to be better consumers. So I assume that's what your initiative is all about, right? Yeah. And, you know, students, on college campuses are incredibly active on food issues. They also have a long track record of being very active on social change initiatives. So we want to make sure that they're informed, that they're well-armed, and that they have the resources and the best information on how to organize on their campus. So we just two weeks ago launched a campus challenge along with Chef Tom Clickio and a couple of our other chef friends, um, encouraging students to come up with organizing plans on how to organize students on their campus around food issues. And uh-huh. the grand prize winner is $5,000 to execute that plan and a visit from Tom Clickio. And then we'll be giving out three prizes 
to the runner-ups that are also be cash to execute those plans. We'll be giving another three teams $2,500. Wow. Um, the contest is open, you know, until March 21st. If students are listening and want more information, go to playtotheunion.com backslash campus challenge to find out more. We're really excited about this. It's a great way to engage on your campus. We think these will be the, you know, the change makers that work on food policy for the next decade or more. And, yes. Um, we want to see as many applications as possible. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm amazed at how um, political the kids are. And it, I, in no small measure, thanks to Bernie Sanders, who, for whatever reason, has managed to goad young people out of their apathy. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> It's a miracle. I really do. No matter what happens with this election, you know, the fact that Bernie Sanders has it's like it's like uh, J.K. Rowling created a whole new uh, cohort of readers. Bernie Sanders is creating a whole new cohort of voters. And I am so grateful to him for that. I just think he's amazing. I mean, even my daughter, who never had a political thought in her brain until, you know, six months ago, is suddenly absolutely galvanized by this, uh, by his campaign. But let's talk for a minute about the campaign because um, two of the guys who um, were involved in writing that fantastic paper about food policy in the 21st century, that would be Mark Bittman and Ricardo Salvador, who we mentioned earlier from the Union of Concerned Scientists, they went to Des Moines to caucus. Um, can you give us a little bit of a, um, a sense of what, what happened at the caucusing? Were they able to connect with any of the candidates or did they just you know invest all their time in talking to voters? What, what was the, the fallout from that? I'm, I'm fascinated. So, you know, the campaign recognized that Iowa is a huge hub for food organizing activity and also an important electoral state. So Ricardo and Mark went to Des Moines, as you you mentioned, to to really mobilize local community groups and engage campaigns Uh, ahead of, they actually went a couple days ahead of the caucus. Um, So while there, they built relationships with key groups on the ground, both working on food and farming issues and expanded our relationships. and also, you know, they got a, a great piece in NPR and an editorial in the Des Moines Register to yeah, highlight yeah. some of the work we've done, the polling data that we released in November. Um, so for us, it was, a, it was a great success and we just, you know, need to be doing more of it. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a great idea. I mean, especially since Des Moines right now is engaged in the fight for its life for its water, as mm-hmm. I'm sure you're aware. Um, yep. Given that there, I've had the you know Bill Stowe on from the Des Moines Water Works, and then I had um, Richard Manning on last week, who wrote the Harper's story about it. I mean, I've been fascinated by how that's going to play out because that is just the most stark and obvious example of how you know big scale, large scale agriculture is uh, rolling over consumers. Um, and local uh, politicians in order to get what they want. And I'm really, really hoping that that the suit comes to court, you know, in a relatively timely fashion uh, and that they don't manage to drag it out for the next five years. Meanwhile, people will be, yeah. you know, drinking bottled water. Um, right. So let's talk a little bit because we only have a few more minutes left. But which committees in Congress um, represent the best opportunities for food policy action to connect on meaningful issues? Is it the uh, you know agricultural committees in, in the, the House and in the Senate, or is it appropriations? Um, who are the people who can really move your agenda for you? Yeah, so the Agriculture Committee on the House and the Senate plays a central role, and I think, you know, What's important to note there is that the ag committees have traditionally had the makeup of people who represent large corporate farm interests. They do. Even incremental steps that we can take to encourage members from other parts of the country to, you know, to request a seat on the agriculture committee is actually really meaningful. When I worked on the Hill for Shelley Pingree, 
she spent a couple of years on the agriculture committee and you know she didn't look like the other members of the committee she didn't talk like the other members of the committee and yeah. it changed the dynamic in a lot of ways you know she talked uh-huh. about GMO labeling in 2008 which really wasn't what was happening um, right. otherwise and so that kind of you know as small as it may seem is actually really important um, because if it's just members that represent the sort of large agriculture corporate interests, we we won't have this diversity of voices, and there won't we won't really see the change that we want. Right. Um, you know, other committees. I think appropriations is incredibly important, um, especially the agriculture subcommittee on appropriations. They make decisions every year about um, the USDA budget, the FDA budget. Um, really important to weigh in there. And those are some of our you know our real leaders there: Sam Farr, Shelley Pingree, Rosa DeLauro on the Democratic side. Um, Fortenberry is a republic, a fantastic Republican um, huh. on on the Appropriations Committee, who's been a great champion of food issues as well. Um, and then there's other places where you know the House Committee on Education and the Workforce is the place where the Child Nutrition Bill comes through. Right. And you know important champions there as well. Absolutely. So there's other pockets um, in addition to Ag, but that's really um, you know the lion's share of our work com- will come through that committee. Right. Right fascinating. I mean, the way it all works is so interesting to me. I mean, I, I just, you know, I find it all very uh, sort of opaque, the way Congress works in general, the lobbying, you know, who you can push on to agriculture, who you can't, uh, the kinds of alliances they have to make between each other or don't. Um, all of that stuff is is very murky as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, with your work with Jelly Pingree, you got the real bird's eye view of it. Thank goodness there's somebody out there who knows what's going on. Um, so um, given the corporate lobbying structure, like what, what strategies do you guys use um, in order to sort of get your message across to um, people in Congress who might, you know, normally never hear a voice like yours? You know what I mean? Like, how do you get an audience with them? Or how do you how do you encourage them to think differently, given who's funding their campaign for reelection? So we use some of the same tools that big corporate lobbyists use, too. We fly in constituents and we communicate directly with um, members, but we do more creative things, too. We bring in chefs from around the country that are, you know, cooking at some of the best restaurants in, you know, Vermont and Indiana and um, Kansas to talk to their senators about child nutrition. And we, you know, have some of those those really important discussions, too. Um, And, you know, I think... We realize we're not we we're not going to nor do we plan to match you know corporate lobbying interests or big ag dollar for dollar. What we have is is a different tool. It's accountability. It's sharing this information with voters so that they start to ask questions and ultimately members realize that these issues are more important than they than they you know initially gave it credit for. And so we you know we fully intend to arm the public with information rather than spending. Um, you know, millions of dollars right. to lobby for a better food system. Right. I, you know, how do you get people to engage more uh, directly with their congressional representation? I mean, I, I can't say that I'm somebody who, like, immediately fires off a note to Chuck Schumer or Senator Gillibrand. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, frankly. I mean, I should, I guess. But how, how, are, how do we get more people to do that? Is that what you're talking about when you talk about educating yeah. the public yeah. and then... And then having them put pressure on their congressional representation is it is it really as simple as that? It it really is as as simple as that. You know, there's more there's certainly more complicated piece of it pieces of it, but I think the best thing that we can do in addition to educating members is to educate the public who really cares about these issues yeah. that their voice does matter that 
that elected officials are beholden to their voters, their constituents, and having spent, you know, nearly a decade on the Hill, I can, you know, just reiterate firsthand, and so can Tim Ryan and Shelley Pingree, how it, how really important it is to, to pick up the phone when an issue is important to you, when you want, you know, more transparency in the food system, or you think that a member should vote a different way, pick up the phone and call them, send them a note, send them an email. Um, it, they're, you know, ultimately what, what we want to show is that this is a voting block that cares about these issues. And so um, picking up that phone is really important. Wow. So we could organize letter writing campaigns and have, you know, all your best friends write a letter that says essentially Absolutely. the same thing. Um, and we is... want to make it easy for you. So, go, uh-huh. so, you know, go to foodpolicyaction.org and you can sign up there for any of these petitions on some of these big food issues that are that are coming up. Um, use social media. There's, you know, there are you don't have to create this on your own either is what I'm trying to say. There are. Right organizations like ours and others out there that that want to help you find your voice to advocate for a better food system. So does your on food policy action, are there also like a list of 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 issues that you want to see people uh, write to their representation about, like besides reauthorizing child nutrition or, you know, like what about pushing for immigration reform? Um, because it's to me that has become very clearly a space where, uh, you know, big ag is basically making money uh, off of cheap labor because there is no immigration reform for just for an example, or, or say for the $15 minimum wage. Um, These are all like issues that I think, you know, are very much in people's minds, but I I think they, they, they wonder they, they need a, like they need a sort of umbrella like yours to say, here's what you should be writing about where, here are your top 10 issues, you know, pick three and write about those or tweet about this. Do you have that on the website? No, absolutely. We think, you know, just to mention a few, immigration and the fight for 15 are incredibly important. And we have in the past and will continue to score votes and support for those pieces of legislation. Um, at the moment, we don't have individual campaigns on those two issues, but they right. are central to fixing the food system. And we work with a lot of coalitions that, you know, that are pushing for that. Very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think we should probably wrap it up here, but tell us, you know, once again, people go to either plate of the union.org for the college yep. challenge. So plate of the union.com, um, or foodpolicyaction.org to learn more about the plate of the union campaign and how you can engage as presidential candidates or go to foodpolicyaction.org to check out our scorecard, um, and call your legislator, you know, this week and ask them why they didn't score better or thank them for their 100%. That's a beautiful thought. I love that. I'm going to do that. Claire, thank you so very much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. I hope you will come back and tell us, you know, closer to the um, actual presidential uh, election, we should have a follow up to see how things are going, don't you think? I'd love to. Yeah, thanks so much. That'd be great. Thank you. And thanks to my sponsor um, uh, and uh, Wisconsin Dairy. Is that right? And uh, and thanks, of course, as always, to my wonderful engineer, Jack Inslee. We'll see you next week. We'll be talking about restaurant workers with uh, uh, and a new book called Forked, which I know you're going to want to hear about. Thanks so much for listening, folks. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.